welcome to Fossils by Firelight, a series of conversations with South Africa's geological legends, with our unearthly discoveries, learnings, memories, interesting stories, and maybe a few tall tales to chronicle our history and inspire the next generation of geological heroes. Tonight we're talking about everything fits and gold. Uh, I'd like to introduce our guests to you tonight, starting with Frank Gregory. Frank's an old hand at podcasts already, so welcome back again, Frank. He started his first job with Texas Gulf Exploration in Namibia, then to 24 years at JCR. He was also the founding party of the establishment of the Mineral Corporation, um, and I proudly worked with Frank for many years. Our next guest is Prof. Bruce Kencross, and he's an Emirates professor at the University of Johannesburg, but he's also a world-renowned author of 14 books and 128 journal articles on mineral-related topics, Uh, a photographer with many awards, as well as GSSA awards, the Draper Memorial Medal, the Jubilee Medal, and the Presidential Award, among others. You've even had a mineral, Ken Crossart, which is discovered in the Kalahari manganese field, named in the recognition of your work. Our next guest is Prof. Gillian Drennan, who is the first ever female head of geoscience at the University of Atwaterstrand, which makes me so proud. She's also received the GSSA Jubilee Award, as well as the GSSA Honours Award and a number of teaching awards. Our next uh, guest is Prof. Richard Fulhoun, also a podcast expert already. Richard has over 30 years in the mining industry, including 15 years as Chief Consulting Geologist for Goldfields of South Africa. Richard was appointed as an honorary professor at WITS in 1998. He's published over 60 scientific papers and was responsible for publishing of two books, one of the Great Minerals Fields of Africa and the other on Africa's top geological sites. And my co-host tonight is Kate James Kleinhans. She's the curator of the Johannesburg Geology Museum, housed in Museum Africa. Kate, I read an article the other day where you highlighted some of the important artifacts and information contained, not just in the Geology Museum, but in the Museum Africa. So I'm sure we're going to be chatting about those tonight. Maybe a little bit. Bruce, Joel, Richard and Kate are all part of a group of WITS alumni, from the Geological Museum Association, who advise and assist the management of the Johannesburg Geological Museum. So with all of that, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm going to hand over to Kate, who's going to host this podcast. So these lovely people around us, all quite good friends, and we all sort of work together and consult together. So we kind of got together in the hopes that we could talk about its history and the history of the Bitwise Front in terms of how it's developed and how it became the amazing city that is Johannesburg and extending out to Carltonville and those areas. And part of what I wanted to talk about was not just how the city developed, but why the city developed and how the gold and the gold mining really affected how the city became the city, but also how that gold mining affected our institutions. So Wits University and why Wits University became Wits University and how the gold mining is the reason. So I think Jill will probably know more about the history of its definitely its university itself. But also I know that, that Richard is, is very well versed in not just the discovery of gold, but also some of the processes, early processes 
Bruce, I know, can tell us all about the mineralization and how important it is and the different types of minerals. And I know that Frank was involved in the early mining, so hopefully we can start with that. So we know that the Vitz gold fields were found around 1890. 1886. Yes. We know that the Geology Museum was originally founded at the same time as well as the GSSA. But Johannesburg itself mm. was only really became a city probably about a year after that and then developed hugely into a city of over 10,000 people really, really quickly. And part of that was the early mining and the early mining exploration. And maybe you guys can try and enlighten us more about that. Well, if it wasn't for the discovery of gold, Johannesburg wouldn't be here. There are a few anomalies about Johannesburg. It's, it's the largest city <laughs> in the world not built on water. It's built on paleo water <laughs> um, from the deposit of the sediments and so on, but uh, it's, uh, it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened. And uh, yeah, it's, it was a hot, hot political issue at the time in the conflict between the Boer republics and, and the British colonies. And uh, there were strikes and raids and arrests and people were hanged and and eventually Paul Kruger was forced into accepting the fact that Johannesburg was here to stay and uh, he uh, he decided bene to be a great benefactor and he donated two pieces of real estate to each religion but the Jewish folk he only gave one piece because they only believed in half the Bible <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one <laughs> Uh, the, the water issue is quite interesting because we mentioned the David Draper medal and David Draper actually founded the original water source at Zeebegom for the city of Joburg. But before that, there was this, this really odd situation where Barney Bonato, who tried to come in as a diamond magnet, was denied basically diamond r mining rights by the rest of the landlords because they didn't like him. So what he did is he bought up the city rights. So he bought up a right to build roads. He built up a right to find water. And one of his plans was to build something called the Fairfontaine Dam, which is in Mondial. And the Fairfontaine Dam actually started building. Then they started construction. They put a Blondin line across a valley. They had the whole lot. But they obviously didn't have particularly good geologists because they were building the dam on a fault line. And they couldn't find a, a proper basement for it. So they dug and dug and dug and couldn't fix it up. And then Barney Bernata was either um, pushed or jumped off that boat. And the whole project fell apart. And if it hadn't, then where Mondio is now, the suburb of Mondio, which is in the south of Johannesburg, would have been a very nice dam providing water to Joburg. Instead, we had the Zebrakom water supply provided by David Draper and his red handkerchief, which is a whole different anecdote. He apparently found the water supply with a a dowsing rod and tied a red handkerchief to the to a tree, but he was being um, exported forcibly at the time, and sent a telegram from Durban going, "Water found, see Zebacom, please return handkerchief." And the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> What's interesting about, uh, as you said, Richard, the discovery in 1886 by George Walker and George Harrison, is that. Actually, gold in the Witwatersrand area in general, as you probably know, was discovered it was discovered a long time before that. And in fact, the first recorded discovery of gold in this area was in 1853, 
100 years before I was born, actually. <laughs> Not too far away from here, a certain Jacobus Marais pan gold in the Yuxke River, and he, f- and he found some tailings, and then he actually followed it up into the Blancfontein Sprait, just maybe a few kilometers away from here at River Club. And in fact, the road, which is closest to the Sprait there, there's one of the blue plaques up there, and it's called Panner's Lane, mm. after, you know, in his honor. Yeah, but, but there's also been controversy about where was it George Walker and George Harrison actually discovered it because um, people like John Handley in his book prefers to credit Fred Strubin with the discovery because if you look at his map uh, that's in the archives, he just to the west going towards Krugersdorp found uh, gold on what he called the Morella Reef. And that is the equivalent of the main reef along Strike that comes to Long Laughter. So although he didn't find it at Long Laughter, he discovered it three years before in 1883, actually, to the west. So, um, But even so, there's been a lot of inquiries and things about who it was, and it is Walker and Harrison who are sort of officially accredited with the discovery. Mm-hmm. Could I add to that, uh, Bruce? The um, interesting thing is that um, if you go to Zimbabwe and northern parts of South Africa and elsewhere, you'll find that gold has been mined for hundreds of years. Thousands. Mm. And the old workings are incredible. There are thousands, literally thousands of gold workings. However, of ancient workings in Zimbabwe and in South Africa, but there was not one single ancient working on the Vidvaras rock. Now, that was the big problem because the early prospectors were looking for gold in quartz veins and all the gold fields the the major gold fields that were developing at the time like the uh, uh, Kalgoorlie gold field in Australia the 49ers in the States everywhere you go that gold is based on gold quartz veins Mm. so the Strubins and you mentioned the Strubins there Bruce they, they were pretty good prospectors and they actually discovered a gold quartz vein called the Confidence Reef uh, in the lower Vidvaras strata. This is long before people knew what was going on, and they started mining this as a gold quartz vein, typical early mining. And it just so happened that um, they'd also stumbled on the conglomerate, and they had tested the conglomerate. They didn't really understand what it was at that time, and they found very little gold in it. Uh, But subsequently, Walker and Harrison brought samples of a conglomerate that they'd seen at the uh, Steuben's plant where they were crushing their gold quartz vein and found that there was indeed gold in this conglomerate rock. But at this time, it was extremely rich. And that then alerted everyone to the fact that, hey, the gold it doesn't it's not in these gold quartz veins, it's in the conglomerate. And that was the big breakthrough on the Vits, and from there on the thing just uh, blossomed, the whole story of, of gold. Mm. So and but and then of course leading on to the early history of how <coughs> Johannesburg developed from that early find and the importance of that find. Uh, a Ferreras camp, for example. Anyhow, that's just to, to add to, to what you said. I, but you, one can continue with the story. If, 
so basically my interest really arose from doing an, an MSc study on the Witwatersrand um, gold reefs, on the mineral, uh, mineralogy and the petrology through the Economic Geology Research Unit, which was formed specifically to look at research on gold. But one of the first chapters of the thesis was the history uh, behind the gold. So that got me interested in the history of other things like the development of Johannesburg and how that all happened and the romantic stories of, of the pubs and the brothels and everything else that went on. Well told in a book by Charles von Onslen. And uh, I think, Kate, you asked earlier on about a, a, a problem that arose in the early days and that was the gold initially was in oxidized rock. So it was easy to extract the gold, which was liberated from the oxidized rock. However, um, once they got to about 30 meters or so below surface, all of a sudden it changed to f fresh rock. And they couldn't extract the gold with their normal processes of chlorination, chlorination, which was used in the Kalgoorlie gold fields and elsewhere and was really effective, but it was not effective here in the Vidvarasrand. So people started leaving and Johannesburg started becoming a ghost town <laughs> uh, because there didn't seem to be a future. But then, fortunately, at that time, two Scotsmen had been working on um, this cyanide as an extractor for, uh, for gold from sulfide or from unweathered ore. And lo and behold, the cyanide did the trick. The financing became a factor and enter the landlords. <laughs> but even, even with the cyanidation process, it actually changed the face of Johannesburg yeah. as a city. Yeah. And this is... A recent been a recent project of mine is it changed the face of the north of the city versus the south of the city yeah. and how the areas were were seen and who lived where and how those areas developed economically which it's incredible to think that one small factor could change so much in the city yeah well i did say it was a huge factor that changed things in the city <laughs> <laughs> it was one small process when, when you think that since that 1886 discovery I mean, if you look back in the last 6,000 years of gold production, I think there's a total of about 200,000 tons of gold that have ever been produced. And put that into a cube, we all know that that's about 23 meters cubed, which is nothing. And about 40% of that has come out of South Africa and out of the Witwatersrand Basin. Mm -hmm. It is a staggering statistic. Mm -hmm. yeah. It'd be interesting to see how much waste rock has come out in comparison. Well, it's uh, the grade is averages five grams a ton. Five, yeah. So there's your answer. <laughs> yeah, that's a very large chunk of rock. <laughs> what's you know what's interesting about George Harrison is if if you go out towards the east, in front of Eastgate, there's the there's that big statue of him. I don't know if you've ever seen it there. Um, almost as yeah. you're turning into Eastgate, and I'm always intrigued by that because. Why it was why it was actually erected there and not at Long Laughter, and there's no plaque there either. So for anyone who doesn't really know it, it's just a guy standing, you know, symbolising seeing the you know seeing the ore actually in his hand. But what's interesting is if you if you Google George Harrison um, 
photos. If you just Google that, you'll get about a hundred of George Harrison in the Beatles. But, <laughs> but, but in amongst there, there, there is a picture of the statue at Eastgate as well. So he's, he's in there somewhere. Yeah. But it's quite strange that it's in the east and not actually on the west. Interesting, Bruce. There, there is one other uh, statue just outside the civic center of Johannesburg, mm. the old civic center, of a mine worker. And he is looking in a particular direction, and that is towards Long Laughter. Oh. Mm. But it's mm. not George Harrison. Mm. <laughs> I think that that brings us to, to chatting about the origin of its university and the School of Geoscience, which started as the, as the geology department. Um, because originally we were part of the uh, School of Mines down in Kimberley with the uh, discovery of diamonds, um, and then when the discovery of gold did take place, there was the need for proper training. And so the origin of, of the university, um, yeah, and so the department celebrates 118 years, I think we are now. Um, so although the university is currently celebrating its 100th year, we are, we have 18 years on that. And what's really interesting is that um, mining and, and geology and chemistry were the early disciplines. And, you know, if it hadn't been for the proper training, um, maybe the gold wouldn't have been as, as, wouldn't have contributed as much if we hadn't trained people to get it out properly. And I think that going forward, I know we're looking, you know, looking backwards, but, but going forward, we need to be training just as many, um, geoscientists who will be able to continue the, the culture and the, and the desire for exploration and, and finding other, other gold fields and other, um, mineral deposits. And if we're not doing that, um, we, we're going to be in trouble. And so I think that it's really important that we learn from the past, but that we look to the future. And I think that that's one of the important things to, to generate that interest in, in going out and finding new things and using new technologies. You know, yeah, the, the change from chlorination to cyanide was a big step in, in gold ex exploration and, and, and in gold extraction. What's the next big thing? Um, is, you know, artificial intelligence going to change the way we look at things? And um, as we get more and more uh, chemically based and use more and more chemical techniques, uh, can we liberate stuff that is in the waste rock that you mentioned? You, you said, you know, a big chunk of rock that we didn't get any gold out of. But what is in that rock? What can we still get out of it? So I think there's lots of opportunities going forward as well. But also we can we can also look at how we can go deeper and how the change in technology like automation can we send instead of sending gold miners down can we send robots down and then I'm, I'm going to mention a word that's probably not not talk aboutable in the industry what about the concept of the mega mine where you're going down three or four kilometers deep into the really bottom ends of the reef that are unreachable by humans because we don't have the technology to do it. Would there be a way to do that using a future way of doing it? Well, you know, I can comment. I mean, we currently, the deepest mine is just over four kilometers. Yeah. And in the 80s, when we were in JCI, were involved in, in exploration, we, uh, we had a couple of deep projects, and one of which was the Fochfor project. Uh, quite an interesting 
story. Most of the projects that we worked on in JCI and exploration were evolved through scientific research and good sedimentology structure, basin analysis, remote sensing, and so on. This one, I was sitting in my office, and Gordon Waddle, our chairman, phoned me and said, come and see me. And uh, this was about 9 o'clock, and he said, I want you to tell me by 4 o'clock this <laughs> afternoon why we shouldn't be taking up all the mineral rights to the south of the Cartonville goldfields and to the south of Clough. And by 4 o'clock, I had to give him an answer. And I said... Uh, Gordon, uh, uh, there's no geological reason except for the fact that everything is deeper than four kilometers. And he said, don't worry about that. Our engineers are happy. And it was quite interesting because that led to, we were now drilling boreholes down to four or five kilometers. And of course, the good old Sullivan 50 machines we had couldn't reach those depths. And if they could, it would take them 15, 16 months to get there. And when you've got a three-year um, mineral option on the property. You can't spend half of that time drilling one borehole. So we uh, we brought introduced seismics into into the Vitwatersrand Basin, and in fact, in that area, we did uh, the second, the first 3D seismic survey in South Africa. On land survey was done at South Deep, mm-hmm. and the second one we did at Fochfor. And uh, on the basis of that, we then imported two uh, oil rigs from Oklahoma. And uh, these things could drill down to six kilometers in two months. And when we got down to, and we could, because we had the 3D seismics, <laughs> we could see where the main structures were and we could sight the holes. And we had these incredible machines that cost a, a fortune. Uh, just even the rate per meter was eye watering in today's money. And um, we could drill these holes down and uh, and then we bring Schlumberger in from Singapore, and they were a downhole probing company, and they do all the testing down the hole and so on. And we drilled quite a few holes down to the deepest we drilled was about 5,300 meters. Sure. Um, and even when the South Deep Mine was planned originally, it was we were looking then at remotely controlled um, trucks and, mm-hmm. and so on. So. It, we will be seeing mining down there. The virgin rock temperature down there is about 80 degrees. Um, and But if you haven't got people there, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. And the grades held up. Can I, could I make a comment? That Frank has brought up the, the important subject of the use of geophysics. And um, I just want to go back. People think now, see the entire Vitvarasrand Basin. However, in the 1930s, all we knew was that there was a central rand, a, an east rand, and a near west rand. That is it. Uh, that whole scenario changed by the introduction of uh, an instrument called a magnetometer, which measures the magnetic properties of rock and was able to measure the magnetic properties of marker horizons in the lower Vidvarasrand and then trace these to the west and develop probably one of the world's biggest gold fields in its own right, the Carltonville Goldfield. And that was in, in the 1930s. But it brought in another factor, and that was the use of a multidisciplinary approach uh, to exploration. Uh, the use of, there of um, uh, Reinecker, who was the consulting geologist for gold fields at that time, he had done work on what were called pay shoots, 
and uh, that's using sedimentology because at that time, the early workers, everyone thought, a lot still do think, that the gold was sedimentary in origin, uh, but that's still a bit controversial. Jill and others would, might, <laughs> might comment on that. But, yeah, in any event, um, that, I think, uh, the use of geophysics um, was very important. And then after the um, Carlton will find uh, the use of gravity and magnetics combined to find the Free State Goldfield. <laughs> After that, the Vander Goldfield was found, all by geophysics followed by drilling. One of those original magnetometers is actually sitting at Museum Africa, and it's the magnetometer. One of the magnetometers was used to find the orange free state gold fields mm. and it's sitting in a glass case at Museum Africa mm. yeah the, that same magnet another magnetometer <laughs> sitting at gold fields wherever their offices are now in a glass case that found the uh, uh, West Witz gold field yeah. Uh, common. yeah it's not but, called a magnetometer it's called a torsion measure the interesting thing is that you mentioned geophysics and how geof how important geophysics was um, as we've got better and stronger computers and as we can work with bigger and bigger data sets, our, our team of geophysics, uh, our geophysicists at WITS um, are reprocessing that historical data. And um, we're coming up with, or our geophysics the specialists are coming up with new algorithms that are now accurate, much more accurate. Um, so it's a pity we don't have those same drilling rigs nowadays when we can be so much more accurate to within two meters compared to the kind of, um, not hit and miss, but it wasn't nearly as accurate as it is today. And so we're working with the historical data and coming up with very, very interesting um, models, 3D models, much better, much more refined 3D models, uh, thanks to Musa and his team. Um so, yeah, there's, there is still a lot there, and, and certainly geophysics has, has contributed immensely. I think one of the red-letter days for the Witz Basin was the establishment of Egru in 1959, and Des Pretorius taking the helm there. And Witz research started it in a big way um, under Egru, mm -hmm. which was funded by the Chamber of Mines and the University. Um, and you think of the candidates have passed through through a group I mean <laughs> there are a few of us around the table here <laughs> and uh, I mean Des Pretorius in in my eyes was was an absolute hero um, uh, he was a quite a hard guy <laughs> as we all remember but uh, he he taught us some really good basic principles and the principle of how to handle a, a problem a, a project yeah. and it's that you've got to read the rocks you've got to record you have to process you have to interpret quantify mm -hmm. and communicate okay. and that was what i picked up from my honors year i then joined jci and had the great fortune after a couple of years on the mines of joining richard's team at, fund at uh, fundamental research unit at jci and that's exactly what we did there it's, it was a multidisciplinary approach mm -hmm. and we lived through probably the world's biggest gold exploration bonanza program ever. I mean, we were spending in the 80s up to 600 million rand a year in the Witz Basin. That's 40 years ago. 
all the mining houses combined. Mm -hmm. There wasn't one piece of real estate available to be held under mineral rights from Brunfort in the south through to Evander and from Costa down to Fort. It was uh, probably one of the most exciting periods of my career. Can I just, just bring another point up here? And that is the importance in this whole gold mining industry of um, financing. Uh, that has been crucial. And the ability to uh, do the kind of research, you know, that Frank mentioned, it was all kick-started by the Chamber of Mines, which in essence was a grouping of the, the major mining houses, about seven of them at that time. And they initiated a lot of these things. For example, the Chamber of Mines Research Laboratory. Uh, that, that laboratory has done incredible work, world, leading, world leaders on the problems on the Vidvaristrand, the problems of heat at depth, the problems of rock burst, rock mechanics, um, this kind of thing. That has all been done at the Chamber of Mines, and it's now worldwide technology based on what has been done in South Africa. But the Chamber of Mines, of course, were financed by the mining houses, and the mining houses were financed initially by the landlords. And there is a whole different story going into, into the landlords, and the history of the landlords is fascinating, and uh, where they lived, the houses they built, uh, etc. But that's a whole uh, different story <laughs> which uh, can be investigated as well. It's just a spin-off of this an incredible story. The entirety of Johannesburg is a spin-off of that, that story. And one of my fa favorite landlords is the Dale Laces. Mm. And you read about their history and after the economic crash, they left and came back, but they couldn't afford to be landlords. So they lived in a really modest house in the south of Joburg that nobody knows about. But just the histories of who these people were and what they did and the fact that they were, we can't idolize them as landlords. We have to idolize them as individual people because a lot of them were. They were just guys doing the best they could and some of them fell really flat on really hard times and carried on doing the best they could and still managed to come right. And we always have to talk about that sort of, it's almost, a, borrowing an American term, a pioneering spirit where you know, we're going to take this pile of nothing and we're going to turn it into something amazing and we're going to do it through hard work and grit. And yeah, we're going to be nasty about it, but we have to because that's how things work. But through that, we're going to create this amazing thing. And in this case, that amazingness is Johannesburg and is the, the Witz fields as we know it because without those initial people going hey I believe in this I'm going to invest in this I'm going to do this we wouldn't have the situation where we're sitting in now where we can sit in a podcast studio in the middle of Randburg talking about them if they weren't here we wouldn't be here so we have to sort of acknowledge that historical almost grit and try and carry it forward we have to try and instill that grit and that that can do attitude through anything mm -hmm into the future where you can't give up. Life's going to kick you on the ass, but you've got to stand up and you've actually got to kick back. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, they basically were entrepreneurs, okay? And, and the good example of this is Barney Bonato. And now Barney Bonato arrived in Johannesburg uh, and um, he 
and looked around and he couldn't find any claims available. So what he did, as you mentioned earlier, Kate, he started the, the Johannesburg Waterworks. Didn't matter whether it was water or gold, he was an entrepreneur and he was going to make money out of it. And that was the attitude of these guys. But they did realize they needed expertise uh, to do what they needed to do. And there, Jill has mentioned the importance of WITS, producing the mining engineers, the geologists, the um, chemical engineers. And you need a whole range of um, scientists and engineers um, on a Bidvaris on gold mine. Let's face it, it covers a lot of disciplines. And WITS was the ideal place to train these people. Yeah. So all of these things came together, uh, the, the mining house system, the entrepreneurs behind it, etc. And that's what made the Vitvaras run. The, the interesting side about Barney Bonato, um, I think it was his daughter was called Primrose, and the only gold mining rights he could get was an area called Primrose, which is still called Primrose. And so Primrose, the suburb, is named after Barney Bonato. It was the only rights he could buy. So you, you've got to look at it sort of in a long-term view as well. Even these entrepreneurs who couldn't get there managed to Look, get he, there somehow. He was a funny character. He was a little guy. Uh, he was Jewish, but he was cockney, and he used to box when he was in England. And he got on a ship and came to Cape Town, went, walked his way up to Kimberley, and ended up, ended up owning the big hole of Kimberley. Um, and he was cheated out of that by Cecil John Rhodes but he got a, two things out of it one is he got a fancy check it was the biggest check ever written in the history of South Africa up to that stage and he also uh, got a special permission to be a member of the gentleman's club which previously had uh, denied Jewish folk uh, membership and he sent his, his engineer Rudd up to Johannesburg because he'd heard about the gold that was happening there and Rudd got back and reported to him and said, there's nothing there. I didn't even bother to get off my horse to have a look. <laughs> <laughs> and Barney didn't trust him, and he went up to Joburg himself. And, uh, and Rudd went about trying to get rights, and he got on a ship, went back to England, and he raised money and set up the first South African mining house called Goldfields of South Africa. It's the first money raised in London to finance uh, gold mining in the country. Richard was also talking about expertise, and I've been doing a lot of research on the south of Joburg and the artisans, and you go and speak to, to the, the, the kids and grandkids of these artisans, and the gold mines were actively recruiting Cornish miners and Cornish coal and gold miners and Welsh coal and gold, gold, mine, oh, yeah. coal and gold miners to come out to South Africa because they knew what was going on. And they weren't recruiting them as come out and work as a miner. It was, oh, you've been a coal miner for your whole life. Come out here. We want to do gold mining. We're going to make you a mine manager. And a lot of the guys who are now living in Joburg, who they may not necessarily be the most wealthy people, but a lot of those people have come out because they were actively recruited by these gold miners. They were actively looking for these guys with the expertise. And it gave birth to a whole lot of other expertise. Uh, infrastructure, road building, South African breweries, glass making, all of that uh, spun off because of, of the need for providing a mining town with all the infrastructure and, and the luxuries of glass bottles. I mean, mm. It's it's amazing the the knock on effect that the gold mining industry had. 
My, my dad always used to talk about secondary industries and how mining was a, was a primary industry and the secondary industry was everything you needed to support a gold miner. And without the second industries, you can't do it. And we, we often, especially as geologists, we focus on the primary, primary industries and we forget that geologists also need beer and a bed <laughs> and a couch and a car. And you have to remember those little guys as well. And we have to remember that without those guys, without the plumber, we wouldn't be able to actually function as a city. But the only reason the plumber's here is because the gold miner was here in the first place. So those very early guys created this need and this want, and the need and the want changed everything. And now everyone, everything is a feed-off of that. Yeah, I've always believed that geologists are the pioneers and everyone else are the settlers. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Could I... Oh, sorry. I just wanted to mention the um, one of the things that has run through this whole business of Vidvarasant gold <clears throat> is to do with finding another Vidvarasant elsewhere in the world. Now, to do that, um, one has to understand what was the origin of the gold in the Vidvarasant and the mode of deposition of the gold. And this has been a fascinating story of different uh, fields of study. Uh, I think um, <clears throat> the first ideas were that it was part of a, a river bank, perhaps, the, uh, go the gold conglomerate. Uh, Reinecke, I think, was on the right lines when he talked about the pay shoots in the, in the East Rand Basin and the Central Rand. Um, and EGRU, an economic geology research unit in the early days was set up, and that was one of the main objectives to understand these conglomerates and um, the use firstly of sedimentology was very important and so people did sedimentological studies on a number of gold mines, and uh, some interesting results were obtained. Uh, but then at the same time, Davidson and Bowie uh, in, in the States were confirmed hydrothermalists. They, they believed the gold was all introduced hydrothermally. And this set off a huge debate. The, the debate still rages in actual fact. Um, and I think Jill and, and Bruce and others might like to comment on it. But um, we still don't really know exactly what the main process was uh, for the origin of the gold and how it was uh, deposited and what controls it. Um, and uh, the whole story of um, uh, bugs has come into this, but that I mean early life in the form of oil or hydrocarbons or whatever as, as concentrators of, of gold. Uh, so there are all sorts of things going around. Um, but as I say, to date... All these ideas uh, have been applied to other parts of the world uh, where there are conglomerates which contain gold and uranium. That's another important component of the conglomerate. Um, but the whole thing is still a bit enigmatic. Uh, I, I think our friends here might disagree, but I think it's enigmatic still. And we've still got a lot to learn. And I think there's still things to be found. I don't think we'll necessarily find another Vidvarasant anywhere else in the world. 
as Frank has said, I mean, we've produced probably 40% of all the gold ever produced on the planet. Where, where are you going to find another one of those? <laughs> so I don't know if there comments on or your feelings about the, the origin and, and finding um, further virus on gold fields. <laughs> I think Jill can probably say something about that. But just maybe before you do, um, what's I think not that well known, uh, as you say, it's the biggest gold deposit in the world. But if you look at the mineralogy, some of the minerals that have been found in the Vits, uh, there are world records there as well. And in fact, in 1997, um, I was sitting in my in, in my office at the then Rao, which is now UJ, and I got a call from Tim Hewitt, who was working for Anglo at the time, and he said um, they found some big, large crystals at the Elonsrand gold mine in Carltonville, which is now Kusasoletu mine, and um, would I be interested to see them and to photograph them? And I said, yeah, sure. I said, can you bring them to me? He said, it, it could be difficult, but I'll try. So anyway, about a day later, he arrived um, at my house, and not at the office. And he said, can you help me to take these things out of the boot of my car? And um, I went there, and here was this 64-centimeter euhedral, perfectly formed orange barite crystal weighing 64 kilograms that... The geologist at the time at the mine, Brenda Fries, who was on shift, they were mining the VCR there, at below 2,000 meters below surface. She saw in the footwall there was a bit of a cavity, and she started to scratch around and saw a few quartz crystals. It widened out, and lo and behold, here was this barite crystal and another one, which is even bigger. It's, um, I think, 75 centimeters and weighs about 74 kilograms. It's my weight. So what she did... Um, with her team, they managed to get some beams of wood and they had some overalls that they made a stretcher out of this thing and they hauled these two large crystals out of this vug and stuck it on the, them onto the stretchers. Wow, 130 kilograms, like two dead bodies. And from 2,000 meters below underground, they hauled these things up to surface. And as I say, the one ended up with me and I took the photographs of them. And as far as I know, they still, they are on display in the mine office. I think they are still there, hopefully, you know, actually preserved. So the largest barite crystals in the world have come from a Vitvarisvran gold mine. But the other funny thing is sphalerite, the zinc sulfide, the largest sphalerite crystals, if not the world, but certainly from Africa, have also come from a Vitz gold mine, from the Velcom gold field. They were collected there in the 1960s. And the largest one is about the size of my fist, and it's a euhedral crystal as well. So I think these things kind of speak to, you know, what happened to the sediments after they were deposited. I mean, they lithified diagenesis, uh, low-grade metamorphism, dike intrusion. And I think that probably then leads to the origin of the gold. You know, placer, hydrothermal, modified placer, precipitation from seawater. Um, <laughs> all of the above. All of the above, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that certainly is a very interesting question. And you're right, we haven't got all the answers yet. Um, and I think that for me, um, I am a confirmed modified placerist. I've got no problem in admitting that. Um, so, so yes, the gold, the gold probably came in, in, may have come in detritely. Um, 
for me, the uranium, you mentioned the uranium, Richard, the, the uranium for me is detrital. The uraninite grains, they are rounded, they're well-rounded. And yes, we see them as angular and as pull-apart grains when, when they are associated with carbon reef. Um, so for me, definitely the uranium is detrital, is, is a sedimentary product, um, which possibly or probably related uh, to the or, or, or resulted in the precipitation of the carbon. And if the gold was hydrothermal, the precipitation of the hydrocarbons from the early fluids that were moving through the basin, which would have been, um, there would have been the very earliest primitive oils, which we found in, in fluid inclusion. So we've got evidence of that. Um, these, these very primitive oils. And we know that oils today carry, carry mineralization as well. So by removing by, by the, the uraninite precipitating the carbon out, the remaining fluid then would have been super gene enriched in gold. And I think that that's possibly why the filamental gold is always between the carbon spindles. So I think it's a mixture. Um, hence why I'm a modified placerist. I'm not denying that, you know, that there aren't micro nuggets. There are in some places. Um, and we should expect that. We've got greenstone material, which does have the quartz gold veins all around. So, yeah, we should expect that. Um, but I think it's a mixture. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a modified placerist. And I think that the very earliest most primitive life forms wouldn't have looked like the algal mats as they are classically described. I think it's really just a function of the precipitation around uraninite that gives it those that spindly structure. Um, so I'm not into algal mats, <laughs> but I, I don't mind arguing with somebody who does believe that. <laughs> but what's interesting about the about the carbon or the pyrobitumen is that that in itself has also been remobilized. Mm, I mean, at least these, four times. Yeah, I mean we've we've got these. Uh, um, they are samples of pyrite from um, the West Rand, where you've got euhedral cubes of pyrite and embedded in them are perfectly formed globules of shiny black kerogen. Which, which I've analyzed yeah, now. Yeah, I know, yeah. And uh, within those perfectly globular bundles of, or, or, or nodules of pyrobitumen, you have gas bubbles. And when you get down to the nanoscale with inside, inside those gas bubbles, you see perfectly cubic gold crystals. And they're not attached to anything. They, it's, it's actually very hard to, to photograph them because they move when you, um, you know, fire the uh, beam at them. But mm. so there's, yeah, there's very much, uh, and, and that's a late thing because it comes from bugs. It comes from something that's post-depositional. Mm. Um, but yeah, getting back to the, the remobilization, there's at least four different phases of, of, of hydrocarbon. Uh, precipitation, and at least two of them are associated with uh, uranium enrichment. But there are later ones, later phases, um, and this you can see on a large scale, but you can also see it on a granular scale, um, where in one single nodule you've got four generations of gold, um, of, of sorry, four generations of carbon, um, which are themselves associated with gold. Oh. 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's the Witz has enjoyed some dramatic uh, deformation in its existence. I remember we we had a prob we had serious structural problems on Dornkorp mine, and Andy Killick and his team got to work in their final analysis. I think there was they defined something like seventeen or eighteen phases of deformation just on that particular that property. And you know, if you take a piece of string and you hammer it, anchor it in long laughter, and you go south to Frieda Fort where the, the, the conglomerates outcrop on surface upside down, and you take a line there, that main reef goes down to extraordinary depths, and if you put Mount Everest at the bottom of that, it wouldn't pop out on surface. <laughs> so, you know, when people used to say, when you worked on the Witz gold mines, it was so easy, there was no structural problems or issues. <laughs> <Why are Ooh>. they? <laughs> they were guilty of terminological inexactitudes. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that gets us back to the, the whole notion of technology and, and deep mining. Um, I think it was, I'm not sure who mentioned robots. I think it was, was you, Kate, that mentioned robots. Um, I partnered with some of my colleagues in mining engineering and they were wanting to develop a, a flyby robot uh, to do geochemical analyses underground. And it was a very, and they needed big samples. And so they came to me to, to be able to hover their craft that they developed. And on the surface, it worked perfectly. Um, and we were very excited. The problem was that at depth, um, the, the laser, um, lens would fog up because of the heat and the moisture. So we had this perfect robot, but it couldn't work underground because of the, of the fog. It, it just, yeah. it was, it became impossible. But as we've improved, we, there's no reason why we can't go deep like that. Um, and, and, and that's a whole new revolution. Um, and can you imagine the data that we're going to get out of that? It would be astounding. Well, the reason I brought up the robots is because it's completely not a gold mine, so a completely different story, was I was working on a Galena mine, oddly, and they have these fantastic articulated trucks, but they're all remote controlled. So the guy actually controlling the truck is sitting in a different truck with a little, it looks like a PlayStation controller, driving this a huge articulated vehicle up and down collecting the ore bodies. And that's where the idea of robotics and the human interaction can come around. And if it would be safer for us to send a drone truck or a drone digger or a drone excavator or down into those depths to get the gold out, then it must be, we must explore it. We have to look at it because, and this is, again, it's a touchy subject because mining is a touchy subject. The cost of human life is huge in mining, and it's a cost you have to take into factor if you're going to do any mining. But if we can reduce that cost using technology, then we have to do it. And any depths, I mean, I've been down, the furthest I've been down was 2.9, so 2.9 kilometers, and it was, for lack of a better word, hideous. I never want to inflict that on anyone. And the thought of going down to 4Ks terrifies me it's just because of how hot it is. And it is. It, 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 it's heart racing, but it's terrifying at the same time. It, it's, it's daunting and it's amazing. And if you haven't done it, 
do it because it changes your entire life. Look on roller coasters for the rest of your life. You will never ever be afraid of a roller coaster ever again. You ought to be in, in <laughs> oh, a skip when it oh. when it skips a loop and it yeah. drops. Look, it is a big issue. Uh, mm. As a young graduate, after I graduated, I was at Western Areas and been there two months, and I was buried under a rock fall and carried out on stretches and in hospital and stitched up and so on. And it's a scary experience, and you've got to bury the devil. And the way I handled it is that when I could, I went back to the same stope, sat by myself, and I turned the lamp off, and I sat a shift in the dark and left the devil behind. Because it's a, it's a big problem. But in those days, we were pre- South Africa was producing a 1,000 tons of gold a year. But it was costing a thousand lives every year, one ton, one person per per yeah. ton, and it was exorbitantly high. But we've got to accept the fact that you know mining is extremely dangerous. And as Roger uh, Dixon of the uh, Minerals Council so eloquently said, if we want to live in this where we are at the moment, it's either got to be mined or it's got to be grown. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the equipment that you're talking about is already being used. I mean, yeah. Lawrence, Rob, and I visited a copper mine in Myanmar a couple of years ago, and they're already using remote trucks and so on. Mm. So it's, a, it's pretty common in open mm. pit operations at the moment. Mm. And that whole operation is all driven on software packages. It's extraordinary. You've got coal mines in South Africa yeah, that exactly. are also exactly. remotely yeah. controlled like yeah. that. Yeah. Resolute mine in West Africa. Yeah. 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 Mm. So it's, it is common already, and at depth, it's, it's not a big issue. You know, again, the mining method, the geology should determine the mining method, Absolutely. not the other way around. And mm-hmm. We had some issues with that in JCI at one time. Um, but um, where you've got packages like the over South Deep, you know, in the upper Ellsbergs, boy, big trucks and remote uh, operations, are abs- it's tailor-made for it. Mm. Um, yeah, but I think the problem isn't so much the technology, but it's more the unions who don't want to be done out of a job. That, that's it's a more of a socio-political thing than a technological issue. And it was a long time ago as well mm, when Oppenheimer had to make the decision: did he go remotely, or you know, did he go, did he mechanize? Mm. And and he made the decision that it was more important to feed the miners because mm. you fed the families. I think at that, that time, for every one person employed. On the mine, they were feeding. There were eight, eight or nine people, so it is a, an important socio-political question for sure. I think we there long mm. there's a long. You know, the, the Witz Basin has always been haunted by politics, right always. from from Kruger's days right through to, the, I mean, the gold boom that we lived through in the 80s with exploration. The whole thing was driven by the sanctions that we were experiencing in South Africa. We could not operate outside of this country. Uh, the gold price was th- threatening to to take a positive run, and there was nowhere else to go. And so we we hit the Witz Basin big time. But it was that whole thing was driven politically, and it continues to be to this day. Yeah. I wonder if I can just ask Bruce a, a question here. Uh, you know. You, you talk about the minerals in the in the Vidvaras Rond. I think something like 140 different mineral species have been identified. This is more than any other deposit I know of. And there's some very interesting associations of, of the gold with 
things like the nickel arsenides and so on. Uh, I often wondered, what the heck have, has this got to do with the origin of the gold? Because I'm sure there's a tie-up. But uh, the mineralogy is pretty complicated, as Jill has said as well. So how does one interpret all this information to make a meaningful thing about where did it all come from? <laughs> yeah, I always have a disclaimer. I'd say I'm not a mineralogist. I'm a coal sedimentologist. So, um, <laughs> when it comes to we'll a question like that. <laughs> but, uh, well, to answer, well, first of all, there, there's a website called mindat.org, which mm. is the mineral website in the world. And on that website, there are, I think, 110 species that are listed for the fits, um, including two type locality species that were discovered there. Um, Isopheroplatinum and Morderite come from the fits. But there are other deposits that have got more minerals. I mean, the Sumer mine has got over 250. Mont Saint-Hilaire in Canada is also um, uh, Franklin, New Jersey. You know, they've got three, 400 species. But, but, but those, are, those are like, those are different more sort of complex than just a gold mine. Sure. And a lot of the minerals are diagenetic and a lot are actually detrital. And, you know, that's what that again comes into the origin of the gold, detrital, diagenetic, hydrothermal, whatever. But the actual association of individual sulfides with the gold, I, I, I really can't answer it. I, I, my interest is more in the aesthetic part of the mineralogy from the Vits and the preservation of it as well because mm -hmm. there are not many collections of Fidwadisrand supergroup minerals actually if you look around whether it's here in South Africa or in big international museums overseas and especially gold specimens because <laughs> a lot of those gold specimens as you know come from gold fields mm -hmm. you know these very spectacular secondary golds associated with the vein quartz for example and they are rare um, and you're quite right very seldom seen actually Elsewhere, yeah. but I mean, there's a reason for that as well. As you know, the Precious Metals Act, you, it's, it's against the law for anyone to possess unwrought gold. So unless you are a museum or a tertiary institution with the necessary permits, you're not supposed to own them. And we've got those. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, I'm yeah. just going to go hard what? man now. <laughs> Quick, <laughs> you and me both. Have you got a good hiding place? Cool. What, okay, I'm with one, you. one of the highlights of my four years of working on the mines was uh, I found a gold crystal, which I is now in a private collection overseas. <laughs> but uh, I dug it out myself, hmm. and it was absolutely stunning. But isn't it sad, though, that uh, – and because we all are part of Museum Africa, isn't it sad that so many of the really spectacular samples yeah. are no longer in South Africa, and we just don't have the budget yeah. to, to buy the specimens and to bring them back? Yeah. Um, I mean, there was well, that dreadful break-in at the Witz Mineral Collection in the early 70s mm. where those green diamonds that mm. had been extricated out of the Witz were stolen. Mm. What's interesting about those diamonds, I mean, the, you know, as you know, the, early was, the earliest ones were found in Clarksop in the, the late 1800s in the sluice boxes. Mm. And I think it was maybe some of those that ended up in the Blairlock Museum at Witz and at Museum Africa. But there are others that were found up here as well in the Central Rand as well. There's a paper by Raal in the 1960s who actually had a look at some of these um, because they're all green, but it's just a green rind on the outside, and that's been explained, which he 
well, it was his mm. interpretation that uh, it was due to the irradiation of the uranium in the conglomerates that was irradiating the outside of these diamonds, but the insides um, were still clear. And of course, the one there's no debate about that, but those diamonds are detrital. So mm. the implication is, although we do know diamonds are quite old, but obviously they had to predate the Archean age of the sediments in the Witz Basin. So there's evidence for very early Archean diamonds somewhere on the Carpval Craton that got eroded in with the gravels and the gold. So in fact, it's a gold deposit as well as a diamond deposit, yeah. albeit not very economical diamonds, but interesting nonetheless. Um, on that score, Bruce, um, in the East Rand, in the early days when they used the sluice boxes and they didn't crush the diamonds, um, they extracted diamonds. Mm. And in fact, one of the mines there was known as the Moda, I think it was the Moda East Gold and Diamond Mining Company. How about uh, that? Yeah. <laughs> Besides the uranium there, they mined diamonds economically and they while it lasted. So where the heck did all these things accumulate? I, I, I just find it phenomenal. Yeah. We're, we're just right. about out of time. So just as a, as a close, and just Frank gave me an idea, could everyone just mention their favorite Vitz gold reef specimen, possibly? Favorite? Their favorite. Um, I, I, can, I can start. I actually have two, so it's a bit cheating. At Museum Africa, there is a ammonite that has been replaced by pyrite and it's beautiful but the other one actually comes from JCI's south shaft and it's a perfect door wedge shape it's a wedge of conglomerate it's gold reef but it has a layer of pyrite over the top so it's incredibly sparkly incredibly shiny but it's a perfect wedge for a door and it's actually my door stopper in my passage door at home <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I, you know, I had quite a few samples. I had 10 samples that were spectacular. Yeah. And probably the best of the lot was uh, a South Reef from Ranfontein Estates. And um, there was, the gold was actually on the faucets of the, the quartzites, on the, on the ripples as, the, as these mm. uh, sediments migrated. And the gold was along each faucet and obviously along the basal scour as well. Um, that sample I found in the dustbin, Ranfontein Estates were closing an office, and they, it was one sample that they'd forgotten to ship off to the plant, oh. and it was in a dustbin, and I picked it up. And what were you doing digging in the dustbin? <laughs> <laughs> you must have really been hard up. <laughs> you know, we were, we were poorly paid mine geologists. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Uh, yeah. Mine was a was <laughs> a piece of carbon leader with about one and a half two centimeters with a lot of visible gold and columnar carbon. However, I've donated it to Gillian and others. And portions of it, only portions of it, been cut down, but it's still there. Still, uh, you'd like to know, uh, but it, that is a spectacular specimen. I haven't seen anything quite like it elsewhere. And the other one was a, um, a sample of VCR with the most incredible rounded. Pyrite pebbles, absolute pebbles, flattened pebbles, unbelievable, beautifully preserved. So those those I've enjoyed. Could I could I be rude and interrupt there about your 
carbon leader. Uh, just a very quick story yeah. is uh, uh, we, we had a client and uh, he, he wanted Chinese investors and I was asked to give the presentation and I thought communicating with Chinese folk is quite difficult so I took my, those 10 samples I was talking about and the Chinese loved the samples, they hated my presentation but they invested in the property <laughs> and the owner of the property then asked who did that carbon leader sample belong to and it was mine wasn't as nice as Richard's I know you repeat and uh, he said to me I will buy it from you and I said well it's actually not for sale anyway years later a colleague of mine living in the Cape had a piece of that carbon leader on his mantelpiece he lives in some uh, in Betty's Bay and one thing led to another and I've introduced the two of them and he paid him twelve thousand pounds. Pounds. Oh. Wow. You should have taken sample. that deal. You wouldn't have had to dig in the dustbin if you saw your sample. I must tell you the story about how I I came to be with that, with that sample. I had a girlfriend who worked for Anglo American. And um, she came along one day and said, Angler has been clearing out some cupboards or something, and I found this sample there. Uh, are you interested? So I said, yeah, yeah okay. Marry <laughs> not, me. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so I got it from a girlfriend who worked in Anglo-American about zonk years ago. <laughs> and then he dumped her. <laughs> and then I dumped her. <laughs> I said, aren't there any others there? You know? <laughs> and he gave the uh, sample to you. <laughs> a portion of his and sample to me. <laughs> half in half. <laughs> So it's had a hell of a career, that sample. So, so we share a sample, and it's yeah, really one of yeah. our favorites. Richard and I have this bond, <laughs> and it all goes back to his ex-girlfriend. Um, but my other, I think my second sample is the little gold, perfectly euhedral gold cube that's inside the bubbles that are inside the carbon nodule that are inside the recrystallized pyrite. It's really unique and and very special. It was very exciting when we when we found that because we'd been looking at the carbon for a long while and we'd seen um, on the, on the surface of the carbon nodules that we had extracted from the quartz veins, the remobilized quartz veins, we had seen that there were these sort of rupture marks. It looked like they had actually exploded. And people thought I was mad. I was saying, look, it looks like a volcano. <laughs> no, you're mad. I said, there has to be gas bubbles. And then when we, when we actually were, were doing the very high magnification photography and we saw these tiny little, these gold grains, perfectly cubic, that, that was just a very special moment. Very special moment. I think for me, look, it's hard to say, but um, I, there, there'd be two specimens, none of which I own, unfortunately. But I think the one has to be the MacIver octahedral gold mm-hmm. crystals in the Witz collection. I mean, that is just so iconic. That and the just, Christmas tree. Yeah, but but specifically the octahedral crystals, you know, that they stand up proud like a chimney on that piece of white matrix. Um, it's been on the cover of his book from for decades now. That is really one of the, I think, the top specimens from the, from the Fitzgerald field. I've actually photographed a lot of Fitzgerald specimens for various mining houses and museums, and I think they're bigger ones, but that one, to me, 
is would be my favorite gold. And from a mineral standpoint, I think it has to be the giant bearite crystal from Kusasoleta. Mm. I mean, that thing is just so off the charts. Mm. I wouldn't like to have it in my collection because you wouldn't be able to pick the thing up to move it around. But, but that's a fantastic specimen. So my favorite specimen would have to be the Lord of the Rings gold ring um, that Harmony created. I was working there at the time. And I was a very proud owner of my Lord of the Rings gold ring. So thanks very much for joining us tonight. Fascinating stories. I personally would love to go back to the heyday of the Vitz gold where it was picks and axes. But obviously we've all moved forward and the technology that's coming out and that's going forward is phenomenal. So I'd like to thank you all for joining us tonight. And everybody else, keep an eye for our next podcast. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.